All right, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, so if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there may be a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. You're welcome to grab that and turn in that Bible to page 1015. That should bring you to our text this morning. We're continuing a message that we started a few weeks ago, so this is part two, concerning our witness in the workplace. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And it is indeed uh, something that we should honor and know and meditate on. And Father, uh, know how to handle rightly and correctly. Father, your word guides us, it instructs us, it corrects us, it teaches us your will and how we are to walk and to please you. So, Father, as we come before it now, may we not do it in a way that is dishonoring to you. Even now, Father, help us to clear our thoughts and our minds of all that we bring into this place that have gathered there throughout the week and all the thoughts that we might have for things happening later today and next week. Father, may we just focus on your word and be ready to hear from you as you speak to us through it. Pray your blessing on it in Christ's name. Amen. So last time we uh, looked at this text, we only really covered verse 18 because I basically did an introduction to the text and spent some time talking about the institution of slavery in Peter's day or the role of the servant and the master and what it looked like under Roman rule. But today we're going to focus on verses 19 and 20. In these verses, Paul provides a reason for the difficult command that we find in verse 18. And then next week what we'll do is we'll come back to the section one more time and we'll work through the final five verses where Peter calls attention to the example of Christ and how he responded to unjust suffering. Unjust suffering. So let's read the text. If you weren't here uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I would encourage you to go back and just listen. It sets some of the background for this text and is important to it, but either way you'll benefit by being here today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, I'll read the entire section and we'll I'll get into it, beginning with 18 servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, beloved, I think, and I mentioned this before as well, I think this text can be challenging, rather challenging, uh, for our hearts to fully embrace. Because the issue at hand is not simply submission to authority, which uh, by itself seems to be a difficult thing for us to faithfully adhere to or practice. But Peter goes beyond that here in this text and calls for continued submission even to authority that behaves badly. More specifically, as we have uh, already discussed, in verse 18, he commands the Christians who were servants or household slaves living under the Roman Empire in the first century, to be subject or submissive to their masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, as we just read. And I want to remind you, as we also talked about last time, that the Greek word translated unjust in verse 18 of the ESV, it literally means crooked, crooked, and this is some of this is review. It is a word from which we get our English word scoliosis. Scoliosis is obviously the term that we use to describe someone has a curvature in their uh, spine. It's supposed to be straight, but it's curved. It's crooked. However, the word was not used that way, but it was used in Peter's day uh, to metaphorically or figuratively speak of moral crookedness. Moral crookedness or being unscrupulous, immoral basically. The word is also translated perverse in another good Bible translation in 1 Peter. And one who is perverse shows a desire to behave in a way that is unreasonable and or unacceptable. Perverse. But translating the word unjust as the ESV does makes sense since unjust could be defined as not based on or behaving according to what is morally right or fair. Not behaving according to what is morally right or fair. Okay? So what were some morally crooked or unjust masters doing in Peter's day? Well, they were apparently abusing their obedient and good Christian slaves or servants. Now, who does that, you ask? Messed up people uh, do that. Lost people do that. People who are hostile to God and therefore hostile to the people of God do that or may do that. Uh, you... I've brought this verse up many times, but it's always good to remind you. Just a second. I'm missing a section of notes up here. So, uh, that'll be really interesting, and I, I don't know if I can remember everything I said, so I will need page three, and we'll just do the best we can. You may even have it. Maybe I gave you an extra page three just for fun. 
But here's a verse that I reminded you, I've talked to you about. Thank you so much. Um, John 15, 19 through 20, Jesus says, If you were of the world to his disciples, you're familiar with this, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted Christ, and they did, they, perse- they will also persecute the followers of Christ. They hate God, therefore they hate the people of God, those who follow him and are identified by his name. So it would make sense that Christian slaves might suffer under the hand of a lost master, one who's in rebellion against God. One writer comments on the issue. He says this, Because the slave had no legal rights and was subject to the whims of his master, many slaves would suffer at the hands of cruel masters. Christian slaves would be especially targeted. Why? As a result of his new identity in Christ, the Christian slave would now have moral scruples, and his obedience to his earthly master would always be subordinate to his obedience to Christ. Meaning he wouldn't just do anything the master said. There were limits. For his ultimate loyalty was found with Christ. He must obey him. The master was no longer in first place as he had been before. The master no longer had the same power to threaten and intimidate a slave because the believing slave's hope was fixed on heaven. True, the slave might suffer as a Christian, but this was a glorious privilege. We'll see later on in 1 Peter 4, there we're instructed that if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. There was a a certain glory that was found in suffering for the name of Christ because it was a, a clear identity with the person of Christ who also suffered and said, my people will suffer as a result of following me. There was glory as a Christian in suffering for the name. This is a difficult thing to deal with for the master then all of a sudden. I can't. I can't control these people like I once did. And and even if I do punish them, they glory in this unjust punishment, suffering for Christ's sake. The writer goes on to say the slave might be killed, but this would bring him into the presence of his Lord. No wonder some masters would be infuriated by the conversion of one of their slaves. No wonder some slaves would suffer for their faith in Christ. One comes... To Christ, living as a slave, he knows that he is truly free in Christ and that he has been exalted as a child of God. And ultimately, his Lord is the Lord of heaven and earth and not this human master. And that relationship then um, changed in a sense. And certainly the master who used to dominate and have total control over the individual no longer really did in the sense that they didn't look to them as the everything and the be-all. They, instead, they looked to their Lord and they, they followed him no matter what. And certainly, this would have irritated an unbelieving master. Couldn't put his thumb on him anymore like he did before. So there was this tension. 
and an inescapable tension because the slave had no right under ancient law to, to just pick up and leave or find a different master if he desired to do that. So it was a difficult situation for Christians to be in. So what was a Christian slave to do then when suffering unjustly under the hand of a morally crooked master? I don't know. Let's see. Uh, give him a taste of his own medicine? Fight fire with fire? Have you heard that phrase? You have to fight fire with fire. I mean, that's the only way to put out a fire. Which... They do light backfires, I guess. Fire people do that. They do light backfires, but they also apply water, so I'm not sure. But typically, that's not what they're talking about. So if you get punched, the only way to deal with someone who punches you is to punch them back. That's fight fire with fire. Uh, how about treat his master with disrespect? Is that how he should respond? Uh, how about steal from him? You know, this master's worthless anyway. He's a real jerk. He's got it coming to him. I'll steal from him. How about not continue to work hard for him? This master is crooked. He's morally perverse. He beats me without cause. I think I have the right to not work hard then. Uh, how about kill him? Put poison in his coffee. Or something else. Was that what the Christian slave was to do when suffering unjustly? No, beloved. And all of those things I mentioned are all things that could have potentially been a real response of someone under the hand of unjust suffering, right? No, the Christian slave was to patiently continue in his submission to his master. He was to persevere in doing good even while he was suffering unjustly. You understand what the text is calling these people to? And I remember I explained this to you that we are not slaves. Okay? So we have to, when we make application, we need to make appropriate application. And these masters were not doing anything illegal. Under the law, they had the right to discipline and punish their servants or slaves under the law, even without cause. But certainly, we can, we can transfer these, this teaching over. We may have a bad boss, a crooked boss, a morally perverse boss, who is, who is mistreating his people or you. He's acting within the limits of the law because it's not necessarily illegal to treat someone poorly, or to not treat them fairly. And how then are you, employee, to respond? Because I think the way sometimes Christians respond is maybe they don't kill their boss because they don't want to do time. They may have thoughts. Uh, and they probably don't put poison in the coffee. But disrespecting, stealing, not working hard? Those are ways in the 21st century that we respond to unjust bosses sometimes. No? Yes? Yes. And stealing doesn't have to be going and taking his car. 
You can steal from him little by little by lying on your time card, right? Taking a longer lunch than you're entitled to. These kind of things. Not working when you're supposed to be working, and that is what he's paying you for. Well, I think I have the right to do it because he's a jerk. Not according to the word of God. But why, why would we continue to submit to a master or a a boss such as this? Why would we continue to do good even while suffering unjustly? Why? And that's what we didn't cover last week, and that's what we're going to look at now. Look back at 1 Peter 2, verses 19 and 20, and Peter gives a reason. For this is a gracious thing. Okay, now what follows is the gracious thing in the verse. He's going to explain it. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So the way I understand these verses, the way I'm going to explain them to you, is in verse 19, Peter gives a reason then, or the general principle that stands behind the challenging command that we find in verse 18. And then in verse 20, it appears that he elaborates on or explains more fully the general principle he just gave in verse 19. So 19, here it is, here's the reason, here's the general principle for why I'm telling you to submit to unjust masters, okay? And verse 20, let me, let me broaden this idea out for you and help you understand it in fully this principle. So let's look at all this more closely. What is meant by the phrase, for this is a gracious thing, which we find there in verse 19? Or more fully said, as he describes it better in verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Other good translations of the Bible have chosen to put the verses this way. The New American Standard Bible puts it like this. For this finds favor. Okay? Instead of a gracious thing. Verse 19. Or this finds favor with God. The uh, New International Version puts it this way. Verse 19. For it is commendable. Verse 20. This is commendable before God. Okay? Commendable means praiseworthy. The idea here is it appears, or what appears to be the idea here is that this is something that pleases God. Something he looks on with favor. Christian, do you want to do that which pleases God? Oh, I mean, I hope so, right? At our, at our, in our best moments, when we're thinking rightly, we would certainly answer yes. Our lives may not always demonstrate that. Let me say, our lives do not always demonstrate that, okay? But the desire of our heart should be that we want to live our lives in a way that always pleases God. And here, right here in this text, you're being told, you want to please God? You want to do what he finds praiseworthy and commendable, here it is. 
This, in fact, this is why you should do it, because the Christian should want to, be desiring to, to live his life in a way that finds favor in God's eyes. So what pleases God? What does he look on with favor? Well, look at verse 20. As I said before, Peter in verse uh, 20 elaborates on the principle found in verse... Oh, sorry. Look at verse 19. Sorry, mixed up. Here's the principle. Sorry, folks. When mindful of God, 1 Peter 2, 19, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's it. That's the principle. Leave it up there. Just let your mind sit on that for a second. You want to do what finds favor with God? Here it is. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's what finds favor with God. That's what he finds commendable. That is what is praiseworthy before his eyes. That is the general principle. And that is the reason behind Peter's command in verse 18 concerning unjust matters. That's the re a reason for it. The compound verb translated endures in verse 19, one endures sorrows, could also be translated as bears up under. Bears up under. I like that better. It's a more literal translation, as it, and it's that way in the New American Standard in the NIV. And one commentator says, the verb conveys the picture of something sustaining a weight that is placed on it. The present tense conveys the thought of constancy, of not succumbing under the load. That's what Peter's calling for, of not succumbing, but continuing. To, it's, the idea is of patience, patiently enduring and not breaking. Concerning this behavior that pleases God, one writer says, whether it was a slave in Peter's day, patiently enduring brutal treatment, or whether it is a modern-day employee not retaliating against an unkind and unjust supervisor, God is pleased. God is pleased. And, and to be clear, beloved, at this point, God is certainly not pleased with the unjust behavior of the master. Okay? It's not like he's sitting there going, I am so happy, so wonderfully happy that this person is treating my child in such a despicable way, an unfair way. No. And so that would be the case with the supervisor who does the same thing. God's not pleased with that. But rather, he is pleased with the humble, patient, and godly response of his suffering child, the Christian. He's pleased with that. Now, listen, this is, I found this fascinating, too. Just helpful. One commentator adds this note to this section of Scripture. He says this, Yet he, Peter, does not say that it is pleasing to God merely to endure unjust suffering and the accompanying sorrow. Rather, it is only such action endured while one is mindful of God. Or more accurately, because he is conscious of God. That's a more literal translation in the NIV. It is not a stoic self-motivated tenacity which holds out against all opposition, but rather the opposite. 
the trusting awareness of God's presence and never-failing care, which is the key to righteous suffering. It is the confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs, which enables a Christian to submit to an unjust master without resentment, rebelliousness, self-pity, or despair. You get that? So he's not just saying, look, you know what pleases me? When you tough it out, man. When you're like, oh yeah, I can handle this because I'm strong. No, you know, you're weak. We're all weak, right? What pleases him is even under that unjust situation, you're suffering, but you respond in a godly and humble way. Why? Because you're looking to him. You're trusting in him. Your eyes are fixed on him. Your hope is in heaven. You know that God will right every wrong. You know that God will bring justice ultimately for your situation. You know that he doesn't not see you, but that he sees you and he cares for you. And even in spite of all that, you know that in this bad situation, it doesn't get wasted, but God uses it to transform you to conform you more to the image of his son Jesus Christ who also suffered unjustly see in that light then there's it removes the self-pity the, re, the rebelliousness the, the despair even the resentment you don't have to wallow in that but you can go through it and come out of it better off even than you were going into it if your focus is right, mindful of God, conscious, conscious of Him. See? And in that, God is pleased. Now, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Sinners tend not only to sin, right? So we got that. But also to sin against those who have sinned against them. Okay? I just want you to understand. Sinners tend to sin, but they also, because they're sinners, tend to sin against those who have sinned against them. So they initiate sin, <laughs> and they respond sinfully when sinned against. You with me? But brothers and sisters, we are called by God to a radically different way of living. A radically different way of living compared to this world. Not only are we not to sin against one another, Okay, so that one, we get it, right? Hopefully, we get it. We may not always do it, but we get it. We're not supposed to sin against one another. But we also are not to sin against those who have sinned against us. So it's not just a matter of, I've got to be careful not to sin against someone, but when I'm sinned against, I am not now free to give it to them. I'm not free to do that. Well, you don't understand, Jeremy. I mean, I was being a good boy. You know, I was doing my best. And then this idiot comes along and decides to just mistreat me and be mean to me and everything else. So I let him have it. Okay, so good that you were being a good boy and that you weren't you were doing your best and trusting in the Lord and looking to him and, and looking not to sin against people. But over here, you're also called when someone else sins against you to not then just let it go and get after them, sin against them, give them a little taste of their own medicine, fight fire with fire. 
Okay? We are to respond when sinned against the way God would have us to respond. You got to get this. And then you got to remind yourself of it because we're forgetful people. I was just thinking about marriage counseling I do. I mean, that's, I probably will say this if any of you have been with it, with me through that. I say it over and over again that where marriages get messed up is, listen, there's two sinners in that home, right? Okay? So eventually one of them are going to sin against one another. Eventually. I mean, by 8 o'clock. It won't even, it doesn't take that long. They wake up, they maybe have a good couple hours, if they had good coffee, I don't know. But maybe that, something goes wrong there as well. So the way to get that marriage moving in a way that honors God is not only do they need to stop sinning against one another, but I'm sorry, they are going to sin against one another. They are. So the other spouse, when that happens, needs to say, you sinned against me, but I am not now, because you did that, going to sin against you. I, with the help of my Father and the Spirit that resides inside of me, I am going to go to his word. What does his word say? What should I do, Father? How should I respond against my spouse who's sinning against me? This is how you respond. Be kind, be patient, be loving, be gracious, be forgiving, be encouraging. I'm going to need your help. You need more than my help. You need me. You can't do that because that's not natural for you. What you want to do is you want to respond in kind. I want you to respond in spirit. Okay? And that will make all the difference in that relationship. And it's no different here. Okay? But either way, God wants us to respond the way he calls us to respond, in a way that pleases him. And we are to look to him as we're doing this, continue to trust in him, and do his will even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, such as this. So just because the circumstance is difficult doesn't mean like, yeah, but you don't understand. I get it, okay? God gets it. He understands it. But he gives even more grace when it's needed. You have to trust him. You have to look to him and hope in him. One writer says, commenting on the section of God's word, says this, we should be, I'm going to leave this up here for a while too, we should be more concerned about our response to the injustice we have suffered than to the injustice itself. Think about that. We as believers, Christians, followers of God, should be more concerned about our response. How are we going to respond to this injustice? Is it a way, am I doing this in a way which is pleasing to God? Am I responding appropriately? Is it honoring to God the way I'm responding? Or am I responding just like everyone else in the world does? Rather than being more concerned about the injustice that was suffered. So typically, I, you probably had this happen to you, right? You have an injustice, right? And what does most of what follows after that injustice has happened when you were treated unfairly or not right? What happens? A long discourse about why that's not. Listen, I'm talking. I'm saying me now. I do this too, right? Which is not right. And so I'm preaching to myself. So I go on and on about how I was not treated properly. It's it's all about that. Give very little time to thinking about how might I respond to this in a way that honors God. Give very little time to that. But give a whole lot of time to make it known how unfairly I was treated. Where we want to go is to the place where we're thinking more, actually, about our response. And is it godly? Is it biblical? 
that takes, that takes time. That takes the Spirit of God working in your heart and your soul over time. That takes you submitting yourself, being willing to humbly submit yourself to the Word of God. Think about it. Think about the Scripture. So later on, because this is what they continue to teach. So later on in 1 Peter 3, 9, same book, he says this. It's just a few verses down. He's going to come back to this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Do not do that. Why would he have to tell you that? Because that is the natural response. That is our natural, our sinful response. You give me evil, I give you evil back. You speak badly about me, I speak badly about you. Okay? Proverbs 20, 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. So again, this idea, being mindful of God, looking to him, trusting in him. God's keeping track. Let God take care of it, because when God takes care of it, he does it perfectly. He does it righteously, and it is his prerogative to do it, not ours. Luke 6, 27 through 28 says, But I say to you here, love your enemies. I say to you who here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Beloved, Christianity is radical. Okay? When you compare it to the, it's radical. It's, it's distinct in these ways, or at least it's supposed to be. And none of this, I've said before, none of these things, these commands, is possible without being born again, without having... God at work in your life. I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do it. You're just going to look at that, shake your head, and go, forget it. But with the help of God, with his strength, with his power, with a changed heart, with a new mind, with the word of God being fed into you, and you believing it and trusting in it, and the, and the people of God encouraging you and helping you, yes, you can do it, and you must. God calls you to do it. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. There it is again. Bless and do not curse them. What do we do? What do we do? Because this we're talking about the workplace, but what do we do? Yeah, we often, if we're being honest, we we curse. Not it's like curse like use a bad word. It's like call call something bad to happen on like, oh I hope you I don't even want to say it from the pulpit, but we say bad things. We curse them. I hope something bad happens to you, but we use other language. I mean, you drive on the freeways in California, I'm telling you. See, we struggle with this more in California than if you're driving in Idaho. I'm just going to tell you right now. Those people don't have any idea. There's nobody on the road. But in California, people cut you off. They tell you you're number one. What do you do? What do you do? Father, I just want to pray for them right now, their soul. I want to pray that they make it home safely. Now, you, you know, I know you're laughing. Um, but that would be a godly response. It would be a, a godly response. And God, uh, please forgive me for the hate that I feel in my heart right now and how I wish I could shoot them and get away with it, but I know that's wrong. I know that's wrong. I feel it, but it's wrong. I repent of it. Father, I pray that they make it home safely and would you work 
I don't know what's going on in their life, but they're obviously got some anger issues. But Father, uh, I hope you would reach out to them and maybe redeem them. I don't know, even know what the condition of their soul is, but you see, that that's a Christian response, uh, a, a proper Christian response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to just, you know, keep it real. With you guys. Uh, 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. How about 1 Thessalonians 5, 15? See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. I think that's just, okay, so across the board. See that no one repays anyone, no one, anyone, evil for evil. But always, always. So no, there's no exceptions here. Seek to do good to one another. He's talking about the church. And to everyone, those outside of the church as well. So it's like, well, I only have to do, you know, be nice to people in the church, which that would be great if we could just get that down. <laughs> You'll get that later, I guess. But, <laughs> but this is to everyone, to everyone, to, to not just be kind, okay? It's not just, okay, get, hear me, it's not just being kind or loving to someone, but it's being kind and loving to them when they've sinned against you. That's a different level. That's what God calls us to do. Now, let's look at verse 20. As I said before, Peter in verse 20, I'll pick back up where I got caught up there just a minute ago, elaborates on the principle found in verse 19. So 20 elaborates on the principle that we just looked at in verse 19. And there he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, and I told you the word is struck with the fist, that's what it literally means, because that's how they administered just discipline in the day. If you are beaten for it, you endure. So for what credit is if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So here, Peter makes the principle in verse 19 more clear, more clear and full by first asking a rhetorical question. When someone does wrong, when they sin, or for instance, in the case of, let's just say, the servant and the master. Let's say the servant is disobedient to his master's legitimate commands, meaning that the, he's not asking him to do something that would violate um, what God has commanded him to do or forbid him from doing, okay? So in that sense, it's legitimate. He's just asking him to do something, and he commands him, but he, he, he doesn't do it. And as a result, he's punished for it and then endures and bears up under that punishment. Is enduring or bearing under up that punishment worthy of honor? Is it? it? For something you deserve. One writer says it this way, people do not naturally regard the endurance of deserved punishment as something meritorious. You know? So your child's in trouble, they've done something wrong, they've broken the rules, you administer discipline, and they take it, they take it, and they say, okay, they take it, and you go, you are so awesome that you took that punishment, that you bared up under it. That's, you know, because you're, you're expected to, that's expected that you're going to bear up under it, you deserve it. In fact, if you resist it, there'll be a whole other level of discipline and punishment coming. So, 
There's nothing especially meritorious about taking punishment that you deserve. <laughs> It'd be like you know, someone going to prison for murder and they did their time and you that was so good of you. <laughs> okay, you, you deserve that. Another writer says, patient endurance of justly deserved punishment is not remarkable or especially commendable. Many wrongdoers know that they are getting what they deserve and bear the punishment without complaint. Okay? So one who endures suffering that they deserve is not the one who finds approval or divine approval. Rather, it is the one who, being mindful of God, endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Not deserved. It is not deserved. It's not right. And they bear up under it anyway. One writer goes on to explain, far different are the times when you do right and suffer for it. It is at such times that the natural man's sense of justice and self-protection would seek revenge or return to insubordination and perhaps hatred against his master. The surprising response of a Christian is to take it patiently. This kind of endurance is something only made possible by being conscious of God or mindful of God and continually trusting him to care for those rights which have been trampled underfoot by others. At such times, trusting God is not easy, for it goes against our natural inclinations. You remember I uh, titled this our witness in the workplace, right? It is that type of behavior that causes people to stop and to start to ask you questions, to start to, to think, what is going on with this person? Why don't they respond in insubordination? Why don't they strike back? Why don't they do everything I see everyone else doing? Why are they different in this way? Very different. Giving that person the opportunity to share with them the reason they are different. Their relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father, the creator of the world, who has instructed them and empowered them to live differently. To show grace when grace is not shown. To show mercy when mercy is not shown. To show patience and be patient when there is no patience being given. To act rightly when others act wrongly and even against you. To do good in the face of evil. See, that's power. Another writer adds, it is most extraordinary when an innocent person accepts unjust suffering with patience, calmness, and composure. But then Christians are expected to be extraordinary people. Yeah, different, called out, empowered, followers of Christ. Christ was very different. Christ was unique. Christ stood out. And so his followers are too as well. Just to keep this all in perspective as we come back to it again next week, but just to make sure we don't misunderstand something here, one writer just says that Peter did not merely summon believers to suffer. He's not just saying, hey, you guys should suffer, but he is rather to perseverance in good actions 
even when unjust suffering accompanies these actions. That's, that's it in a nutshell. You persevere, you continue to do good, you continue to, in this case, submit, humbly enduring the unjust suffering, but subjecting yourself to that very master who is rendering this unjust suffering. Continuing to do good, continuing to respect or serve them with all respect. Beloved, that's a God, that's a God thing. I'm just going to tell you that. There's just no other way around it. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability to do this in your own strength. None of us do. We must rely on the Lord. But listen, as I said before, and this is what you need to think about, because whether you're an employer or employer, or maybe this doesn't apply to your work situation, but the principle here may be applied to any situation where unjust suffering occurs. The principle can be applied to any situation where unjust suffering occurs. How are you responding? One writer says his teaching about slaves and masters is a worst-case scenario. If Peter's teaching applies here as it does, surely it applies in less difficult circumstances as well. How are you responding? That is something for you to be thinking about and considering. Are you doing it in a way, are you responding to unjust suffering in a way that honors God and that he finds commendable and praiseworthy or are you responding in a way that dishonors God and destroys your witness before the world because you're acting just like the world would making you no different not distinct from the world let's pray Father in heaven I thank you for your word and thank you for the power of it in our lives And I just pray, help us to wrestle with this appropriately and to apply it rightly in the areas of our lives that, that need it. Help us to think hard and long on these things, not to just blow it off, made it through another Sunday, whatever, but rather to really let that word have its way in our hearts. Father, show us where we have erred and show us in our lives where they're not praiseworthy. They're not commendable. Father, we want to live lives that honor you. At our best, that's what we want, and we confess we fail. We fail a lot. Father, help us to look to you and find your grace, your sustaining grace, your empowering grace that comforts us when we we do fail, but also empowers us to walk in a new way, to live a different kind of life, good, the good life as you've defined it. Help us to do that, Father, so that we might be a testimony to this world, the power of our salvation to change and transform sinners such as us into people that you are pleased with and can be rightly called the children of God. Thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.